So it should be recording now. So should I just read that and then we'll go? Yeah. Okay. So welcome everyone to a discussion on the neuroscience lens of coaching taking place on August 18th, 2014 with Mandy Wintink and Quinn Simpson. Uh, so I'm Quinn Simpson and I am going to let Mandy introduce herself first. Okay. I'm Mandy. Uh, hi. Welcome everybody. I'm the founder and CEO of the Center for Applied Neuroscience. I have a PhD in neuroscience and psychology, but I also have training in mindfulness, meditation, and yoga. So together, these perspectives have essentially allowed me to think about how we use our brains and our minds in ways that can serve us better. And as a result, I have developed my own coaching practice, and I also train other people to become coaches. So, Great. And I am the co-founder of Graydon which is a coaching training company that delivers uh, momentum-building coaching programs that are uh, really widespread and, and, and look into all aspects of school life and universities. So we work with schools and universities around the world um, effectively to embed a coaching culture into those schools and universities. And uh, we're really here today to understand better what neuroscience says and, and the lens that it has about coaching. Um, and how that can be integrated into schools around the world. So during this discussion, I'm going to be asking questions um, of Mandy, and um, they're, they're questions that really arise when we're training teachers or parents or students in coaching skills. So they're not necessarily questions that I as a coach have asked, um, but some of them are. So whether you're a coach, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a parent, um, or you're you know, a 15-year-old student, hopefully this will be interesting to you to hear this perspective. Um, so just before we start, I want to give you a sense of what we mean by coaching um, in terms of this context. So I'm going to give you a definition of coaching that we'll be working with, and all the questions are kind of based roughly on this. So coaching is one of the most powerful tools for unlocking a person's natural abilities. It fosters awareness, transparent communication, community, leadership, and well-being. A coach approach is, is founded on the premise of ask, don't tell whereby a coach elicits what already is, exists within the coachee. Applying a coach approach within an educational environment empowers teachers and pupils to access their own wisdom through the process of exploration, application, and reflection, rather than being given the answer. And I think the, the best way to describe what coaching is, is it, it's where somebody asks questions rather than giving the answer and, and somebody has the opportunity to actually think for themselves. So with that, um, what is the definition, Mandy, of, of neuroscience um, and where is it most often applied? So it's actually a really good question, like what is the definition of neuroscience? Because the definition itself is actually the study of the nervous system, but we often don't think of it as just the, the nervous system. We think of it as a more of the study of the brain. So the, the nervous system is sort of, you know, hierarchically organized. So the brain is sort of the, the governing body, I like to call it, and like the main, the central organizer. <laughs> and it directs the rest of our body th with the help of the entire nervous system. So I'm not going to describe all the different divisions or anything, but just recognizing that we often, we often talk about neuroscience when we're referring about the brain. And we do this even in the laboratory when we're studying it. We, we talk about the brain as being um, the, the sort of central focus of the nervous system. But what, um, you know, in terms of where it's applied, oftentimes it's applied in sort of a disease model or a disease state. So we're talking about, you know, neuroscience from a, you know, perspective of Alzheimer's disease or stroke or, or damage or mental health. 
But there's this whole other place where we can apply neuroscience, and that's sort of these, these positive experiences that we have, well-being, good mental health, productivity, success, like all these other things that our brain is also directing, but we don't think of it at the same time. So, um, so it's sort of thinking about these, this other realm, and that's sort of part of the work that I'm doing, is looking at it from a fuller perspective or a more holistic perspective. Awesome. And, and actually on that, when you, when you think about, and you talk about mindfulness a minute ago, so mindfulness and neuroscience, mm. obviously that's been popularized more recently and obviously other things as well. Um, how does that make you feel or like what, 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 what's exciting about that to you? Well, I think it's really exciting because it's actually giving a little bit more um, support for people who are interested in those things like mindfulness. I mean, I have a, you know, my own practice in, in mindfulness and meditation and I've like personally witnessed how I can enhance my own brain and how mm. my own experiences are just, you know, changed significantly from like really intense meditation or even from my yoga practice. So I know from my experience that it's changing my brain. We haven't had as much research emphasis in that way, but um, you know, it, it's starting, and even creativity. We've started to look more at the neuroscience of creativity, whereas before we didn't have that much emphasis on it. And it's just, you know, we're not looking at the drugs or the pharmaceuticals of it. We're looking at just how is the natural brain being more creative, thinking about things, um, being mindful, or whatever. So it's, it is a really exciting time in neuroscience to see those things happening. Yeah, and you've, you've actually said to me before that it's it's new, right? And 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 so I sent you a video the other day of the, the music one, and I love love seeing oh you know I love music and then I learn about the kind of brain science you know stuff behind it and then I think oh that's really cool but you were saying to me actually there isn't a huge amount of research in some areas there are in some and there aren't in others how is that developing or or what's what's useful to know about that mm -hmm. well I think that well the 90s so when I was doing my undergraduate degree it was in the in the 90s and that was the decade of the brain so from a research perspective there's a lot of emphasis on brain science and I can see now what the effect of that is in the in the popular press and the you know even in chapters or a bookstore you go in and you see tons of books now that are written about the brain and mm. you know when I was starting in undergrad we didn't have that like wow. they're just it just wasn't there to the same extent so um, I think that the general public is getting really really interested in it partially because research was pushing knowledge about the brain and neuroscience is a really really young discipline so you know as far as sciences it's only really been the last like hundred years where we've gathered a lot of information about the brain whereas lots of other physics chemistry um, even psychology has a really long history so neuroscience is in this catch-up phase right now so people are getting interested in it that spurs more research and then we start to explore other aspects that um, that can even get funded from different different organizations and my last question on this, just uh, as someone who, um, you know, doesn't know a lot about it, what is it that actually, other than interest, what is it that made it possible to study the brain? Like in, in you know, in the last hundred years, 50 years even, what new resources do we have that has made it easier to study the brain and, and popularized it? Well, technology is one thing for sure. I right. mean, um, molecular genetics, um, you know, even just like knowledge from we think of neuroscience as sort of an interdisciplinary study. Right. So as other sciences start to grow, it gives us the tools and the techniques to then look deeper into the cells, mm. the, um, the genes within brain cells, 
um, structures within the brain. So even from an imaging perspective, so we can use we can study a brain that's living. We can study brains that are that are dead. We can st study um, cells taken from a brain, like of an animal, while it's living. So there's all these different techniques that can now allow us to look at the brain from a lot of different angles. One angle that I think is missing, though, is sort of that internal perspective. Like, how do I experience my own brain working? That's part of what I think is interesting about, you know, the work that I do in terms of getting people to think about how their own brain is actually working. Because I think that's a really valuable perspective, um, and it's it's largely ignored from a research perspective. So, so, so as a regular person, then, what do I need to know about my brain? Like, as that person that wants to know more but doesn't know how to know more, um, what do I need to know about my brain as the average person? Well, I think there's, you know, there's a few things that are really, really important. One thing that I often tell people about you know, really early on is how stress affects our brain. Hmm. And actually not just how it affects it, but how stress is regulated. It's a neuroscience, or sorry, it's a neural process. Hmm. So it's a physiological system or process that happens and that's regulated by the brain. So we think about stress as being like very psychological and like, oh, I'm so stressed out, but that's an entire nervous system process. Mm. It damages our brain, it affects our thinking, it affects other systems, so it's also regulating our digestive system, our reproductive system, our cardiovascular system. So understanding a little bit about the stress system can help us take the, the sort of request more seriously that we need to reduce stress in our life. And I think that's a really important sort of underlying mechanism of coaching is to try and reduce stress and not just like stress of, you know, I've got too much on my to-do list, but stress of the environment so that we can make really good decisions, so we can use our brain more effectively, so we can create the things that we're meant to create with our brain, so doing good things. Right. So stress is one thing. I think the second really important thing is neuroplasticity, mm. the fact that the brain changes, and that in itself is a relatively new concept. Um, a lot of people still don't know the, how much the brain changes. Even neuroscientists don't even know how much the brain changes. But I had a really powerful example with one of my clients one time, and I was talking to her, while well, I was teaching her about neuroplasticity, and she was older, she was like 60, and what it did for her was it inspired hope. Because she came from a generation where, you know, you believe that the brain didn't change, that we didn't change as we got older. And so it gave her the, the inspiration that she can change her habits. And she's learned to let go of so much. She's learned to, you know, push through beyond fear. She's learned to change old habits. And she, like, in some ways, she, she seems like an entirely new person. And it's because she believed that her brain can change and that she could change as a result of that. And, and I want you to say the third one in just a minute, but on that, um, you know, the, the growth mindset, Carol Dweck's growth mindset versus mm -hmm. the fixed mindset, uh, that's something that's really topical in education at the moment. And uh, if you can imagine, rather than being 60 and learning yeah. about that versus, you know, you're nine and you're at school and the teacher says, no, your brain is, you know, completely plastic and it can change and you yeah. can make it what you want it to be. I just, I think that's just so empowering and, and amazing. So, yeah. Well, and that is another way that the, the brain is so important and what, what's important for everyone to know. So from an education perspective, 
bringing it into the school system, letting teachers understand how their brain works. There's a lot of research that's being done on educational neuroscience, so how can we bring this into the, the classroom? I bring a lot of this into teaching at the university level. How can I create an environment that's good for the brain so that my students are going to learn a little bit better? Right. So, you know, having control over their environment, um, you know, reducing their own stress. Like, those are all ways that we can apply that neuroscience to a, a positive learning environment. Yeah. And so what was that third one? Well, really just learning, like cool. neuroplasticity, but that also means that we always have this capacity to learn and change, and mm. really that's, you know, our whole life is going to be a brain that's always changing. Yeah. So Powerful. Um, so, you know, this stuff kind of makes me go crazy when I try to break it down, so, and you know that. <laughs> um, but what are the functions and the parts of the brain that if I want to know like a tiny, tiny bit, but not too much to make my brain go swirly, what do I need to know? So if I'm the average person and I want to know a little bit about the brain to know and, and, and make it let, you know, more stress-free and learn better and, and all of that, what do I need to know? Mm. Well, one example, um, I think, I, I mean, I talk about a lot of different areas of the brain, and there, it's really hard to break that down. But <laughs> one <know>. thing <laughs> that is really, I think, interesting is the, the f sort of prefrontal cortex or the frontal lobes. And we kind of hear a lot about that in the popular press and, you know, sort of um, colloquially now we, people are talking about it. But the frontal lobes are, it's the areas at the front of the brain. And, you know, one way of thinking about what they do is they help us with inhibition. So they help us hold back from things that might not be socially appropriate, um, might not be what we really want to do because, um, you know, society is constraining us. And that actually does serve a function because sometimes we want to inhibit our behavior. We don't want to be super impulsive. A way of remembering what those frontal lobes do is to think about teenagers. Teenagers have an underdeveloped frontal lobe. Mm -hmm. they, there's some evidence that our frontal lobes don't develop, get, become fully developed until like mid-20s, even late 20s. So kids, teenagers, are doing stupid things all the time, at least from our adult brain's perspective. We're like, why can't they think about the future? Why can't they do that? Well, they can't because their frontal lobes aren't developed, and that's what's giving them the ability. Mm. I like thinking about that because it allows me to have a bit more tolerance for mm. kids or you know students or whoever because our brain as an adult is very different than a young person's brain. And so we need to keep that in mind when we're trying to teach them or coach them or rear them if they're our own children you know yeah and even for them to know that yeah to know you know your brain's still developing and it's okay that you think like x or that you want to do whatever it is you want to do this weekend just know that you're on the path to developing it rather exactly. than you're going to be like this for the rest of your life yeah exactly and i mean it's it's so the evidence is so well founded now that it's even used in the legal system as a defense for yeah. young people so so that's one thing um the, I think the, um, you know, the, the stress system, so we call this the HPA axis, and that refers to the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. Um, and those are just different parts of the nervous system that are regulating the stress response. So um, the, sort of the way of thinking about it as being really important is that it's this feedback loop. And so we have this natural system that that allows us to be stressed and it allows us to run away when there's a threat or fight against a threat. Mm. And stress in that way is a really good thing because we need this mechanism. That's why it evolved. But when it goes on overload and it starts being you know, active too much, then that becomes a problem for us. So the stress is a good thing. There's a system that regulates it, but too much of it is not a good thing. Right. 
Um, I think another, if I'll just say one other thing out of the millions that I could say, but um, just to sort of think about this more holistically. So the neurochemicals that are in our brain are formed, a lot of them are formed by the foods that we eat. So we bring in nutrients, we um, digest these nutrients, and then some of those nutrients end up becoming the precursor or the building block for the neurochemicals that we use to have good brain functioning. So you know, why it's important is that we need to eat a healthy diet. We need to make sure that we're eating properly so that we can actually build the chemicals that are going to allow our brain cells to communicate with themselves. So it's not really an area of the brain, but just like a piece of the nervous system that is really important. And really, it's not, it's ignored in a lot of ways because we don't think about how the food we eat is actually going to be affecting how we think about things. Mm. Great. Except I did learn, and I don't know whether this is even true, but that you should eat tuna before exams because tuna is a brain food. And I was like, okay, so every time I do an exam in high school, yeah. I would eat tuna thinking, even if it doesn't work, it's making my brain think it's going to work, which might be better than not. Yeah, for sure. So, And that's not necessarily building the chemicals, but it's helping the whole system work better. So right. the essential fatty acids, so we hear about omega-3s and you know all of that, like all those good fats, yeah. we need those for our brain. Like our brain has you know, fat cells within it that help insulate the brain so that, insulate the neurons so that they can communicate. So we get that from fish or, you know, other substances that have those omega-3s. Fabulous. So, yep. Yeah, So and so leading on to the kind of last question that will um, finish the kind of intro, I guess, on all this. Um, from a neuroscience lens, what is coaching? Hmm. Well, so from my perspective, like, as a coach myself, I sort of see my job as being to inspire action-oriented thinking and awareness. I think um, just having an awareness of your situation is really important, um, but being also able to think creatively, innovatively, intuitively, passion-based, logically, putting all of those things together is really, really important. And you know, I because I've studied the brain for so long, I, I can see how it has this amazing capacity to create things. I mean, even if you just look around your environment and see all the things that essentially our brains made, it's incredible. Mm. Like, it, it actually blows my mind to think about the capacity that our brain has. So in my role as a coach, what I am trying to do is leverage that capacity. So take us away from, you know, thinking in ways that are, like, not really serving us or not helping us in any way, and then creating an opportunity, creating space for us to do really, really good thinking, really good, um, you know, intuitive knowledge, whatever that means. Mm. As an example, um, you've probably heard of the, we only use 10% of our brain. Well, that's not true. We use all of our brain and we're using it a lot. And most neuroscientists that I know would say that's not a true statement. But what we can think about from that is What's the quality of our thoughts? Like, you know, where are we using our, our brain? If we're using our brain to think about our to-do lists, about, you know, the stress, about worrying about job satisfaction, you know, worrying about conflict, like whatever it is, mm -hmm. that's not really helping us big build things, you know, create new energy systems, create new ways that we can find peace within this world. Like all of these things can happen from our brain because we've created the opposites to it, right? We've damaged our world. <laughs> we've created war. All these things are yeah. happening from the brain. So why can't we do the opposite? So I think, you know, it's leveraging the existing natural capacity that we have. You defined um, coaching as being, you know, these natural abilities. Well, those natural abilities, in my mind, are the brain's natural abilities. 
So, awesome. Yeah, and I love quality thoughts. I, I, I weirdly, I think it was this morning, or no, it was last night. I was thinking about um, sunk thoughts. So you have sunk costs. Mm. Like I just bought a coffee and I don't want to drink it anymore, so I dump it out. Well, there's two dollars down the drain. But actually, you already bought it, so who cares? Right. And I was similarly thinking about, like, we have these thoughts that, like, are just so stupid to be having because it's already happened. Like, the thought of, like, regret or guilt. Like, they're wasted thoughts. And mm -hmm. so I was thinking about this term of, like, sunk thoughts. And, yep. and that really matches having quality thoughts, which is often what you get in a coaching conversation, different from a conversation with your friend where yep. you're, you know, talking about other things. And action-oriented thinking mm, too beautiful. because yeah. what we tend to do is we ruminate so we do all those regretful things and and those can be useful as you know like some of those are important triggers for what we're going to do next but if we don't get to that what we're going to do next then they just stay in our mind and in our brain and they just sort of circulate so how can we take those thoughts you know and then stop thinking them so much and create an action out of them so that we're actually developing we're actually growing we're becoming that better you know, human being or that better thinking person that we want to be. Yeah. And then with neuroplasticity, obviously, our brain is getting better and bigger and awesomer. Exactly. Yeah. Rad. Yeah. So um, what I, I feel like you might have just answered this, but if there is anything else to say about this, what could potentially happen to the brain during coaching? Like, what are the um, potential outcomes? Obviously, having more quality thoughts is, is one of them. And um, I don't know if you have anything more to add to that. I do. Um, I mean, again, there's so many things that I can think of, but I, I kind of want to just mention a couple examples of what might be happening. So along the lines of thinking and awareness and new perspectives, um, one thing that's good to know is that our brain kind of tricks us. It's sort of the default mode is to make things make sense. So, um, you know, just it, it can even sort of lie to us in certain circumstances. An example is with one disease model, Korsakoff syndrome, where there are certain areas of the brain that start to degenerate that are associated with memory. And so we end up with gaps in our memory in this particular disorder. And the person doesn't necessarily recognize these gaps, but what they do is they start to make up stories to fill in the gaps mm -hmm. without the knowledge that they're doing that. <laughs> in some level, we do that to ourselves all the time. We have gaps in our awareness. So one of the, the beauties of coaching is that there's another brain in there to question the story that someone's saying or to fill in those gaps and say, hey, is that really what's going on? Mm. Because when it's in our own mind, it makes sense. An example I like to use for this is, you know, when you're, you have a song and you sing it in your mind and you're like, oh, it sounds perfect. It's amazing. Like I'm the best singer ever <laughs> in my mind. But if it comes out of my mouth, I'm the worst singer ever. So what a coach does is help remind you that, okay, it might sound perfect in your own mind, but it's not perfect in the real world. And so some of those perfect things might be obstacles that you're like convinced are there set in stone, whereas a coach can help you identify, no, that obstacle might be able to be removed. So just giving another perspective and getting us out of that sort of, you know, natural making make sense in our brain. Yeah. I, I, well, I... I've said it and I've obviously heard as well, like the coaching, a way to define coaching is holding up that mirror, which it sounds like that's like it's holding up the mirror, but then it's also kind of being on their side, right? Mm -hmm. Or like being a part of their team and being like, okay, let's just really assess the situation. Is that actually happening? And the coachee gets to go, well, yeah or no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is rad. Um, what else? Um, another one I think that's important is sort of our relationship or like what happens with a coach is what we're fostering a new relationship with change mm. and 
if we sort of think about how humans, animal, all animals, we have this sort of um, approach avoidant relationship with change. So we like change. We need it to grow and to develop and even to go out and forage and find food. So we need to be finding new things. But it's a bit scary to go out there. So there's always this like, you know, balance between, you know, how much change is good and how much change is bad. And so I think what a coach does is it helps like create an environment so that we can actually seek change because we want to improve, we want to get better. And that environment is, you know, the safety of the coaching session where you're, you know, supporting someone, you know, you're making them feel accepted, okay, and all of those things. Mm. But what that does in our brain is it reduces some of the stress. It reduces, you know, that, that scariness of going out there. Because that scariness is a stress response. That's all scariness is. Scariness to, like, I don't want to change. I like my life how it is. So what we do is kind of create a new environment so that a person can, you know, take maybe baby steps and approach something slowly and then say, okay, that wasn't so bad and I learned something or I got something or, I, or this was benefited me or whatever it is. So we kind of create this environment so that we work with that approach avoidant relationship in a way that's, that's actually allowing us to go forward as opposed to stay stagnant. Great. And, and, and actually just right now, something's coming to me where I'm feeling, I mean, I'm not like that nervous, but I'm at the same time, like, I want this to be really good. So mm -hmm. I'm sitting here with like, you know, that little tiny amount of nerves that probably makes me better, but also may make me do stupid things. Like I've noticed myself say the word rad about 10 <laughs> times since we started this. I never say the word rad. I don't like short forms. I definitely don't say rad a lot. I say awesome, but I don't say rad. <laughs> You know, what, what, what is that and, and how does coaching or, or, you know, having a, let's say I have a conversation after this with my coach and I say, hey, you know, I kept saying rad and whatever else I said um, when I'm listening back to this. What does that allow for? What development does coaching offer instead of me just ruminating on my thoughts of, oh, I said rad the whole time? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, from a coaching perspective, like we could, you know, there's, I mean, even actually you've probably changed since the beginning. At the beginning, you probably felt Absolutely. a lot more stress mm -hmm. and then it becomes familiar. So yeah. our brain wants things to become familiar. So the longer you stay in something, it becomes familiar and that familiarity feels comfortable. But then there's going to be a point where you're like, okay, well, now I want to go bigger. I want, like, especially you, Quinn, who, like, I know you have lots of things you want to do. So you push the boundaries. You'll go to that uncomfortable space again. Then it becomes familiar. So you can rest in that comfortability. Okay. Your brain literally rests in that comfortability. It's going to work hard to make things comfortable, make things familiar. But then there's boredom that happens, and then you'll push to go forward again. So, so we are always seeking novelty. Mm. For you, novelty is very different than for me or for somebody else. And so part of it is like, okay, what is this person's, what is this person's brain relationship with novelty? How much, what is a baby step for that person? What is a baby step for this other client or coachee that I have? Right. And actually novelty is is linked neuroplasticity and novelty are like that's that's part of it right yeah absolutely well everything that we're doing is always changing the brain so right. it's you know I mean one of the other things I was gonna say was that we're training our brain like that's an important concept to know that mm. neuro, neuroplasticity is like training our brain all the time so we can just let things happen to us or we can direct it ourselves. So some people are referring, I think Norman Doidge is even saying self-directed neuroplasticity or some people are talking about that term. Essentially, it's how do I want to change my brain? 
Mm. How do I want to react to things? So what kind of environment do I want to put myself in so that I'm changing it in this way? Mm. Do I want to stay stagnant? Do I want to stay thinking about, you know, all the things that I hate in life? Or do I want to actually start thinking about things that make me happy and that I'm optimistic about and positive about? I can change that behavior and it's going to change my brain. Could you imagine if we all woke up every day and we're like, I wonder how I could change my brain today? Or how will I change my brain today? And then choosing. Well, and I actually just did this this weekend. So I was... I was thinking... Yeah, well, I was out at um, playing na- nationals for Frisbee, and yes, we won, and that was all like amazing, <laughs> and I was super excited about that. But I, I started the morning, so we, the very first day, I walked into the bathrooms, and I started complaining, I'm like, they don't have enough bathrooms for everybody, this is ridiculous. And I've been to lots of nationals, so like, I can sit there and pick out what's wrong with everything. I looked to my teammate, and I said, I'm not complaining until Sunday night about anything that's happening, because I want to have a really good experience. And so I put that, I literally chose to put that aside and not complain about anything. And I had the best tournament I probably ever had. It like everything was great and we ended up going all the way to the gold and winning that gold medal. And I think part of it was my perspective. Like Mm -hmm. I could have, you know, seen every point that we didn't get and made that the emphasis or I could have seen every point that we did get and make that the emphasis. And I chose, I did self-directed neuroplasticity and I said, I'm going to think about this from a positive perspective. Amazing. And so what's important then about providing effectively what you just said, which is this time for reflection and this time for letting someone else or yourself, depending on if you're coaching yourself or you're coaching somebody else, find their own answers. Mm-hmm. What, what from a neuroscience lens is important about reflection? Well, I mean, reflection captures so many elements of, you know, just how we, we think and how our brain works. Like, Um, brainstorming comes to mind Hmm. you know a lot of times we actually brainstorm in not a real brainstorming way what we do is we get into a situation we're like I want to find the right answer Hmm. we don't necessarily know what the right answer is we need to give our brain the space to to let ideas flow out and then sometimes there's a thought in our brain that marries with another thought in our brain but they didn't marry inside of our head they married when they came out of our head and we need that space to like give them all of this um, ability to interact with each other. So we almost need to not look for the, the right answer. It's like process-based as opposed to goal-oriented, right? We don't know what's going to come. We didn't, I mean, if you think about, you know, when people started, you know, years and thousands of years ago is when our brain was developing. It's not like we set out to say, we're going to build all these buildings. We did things and then we started to see what the effect was without intention. We sort of just let the space be there. It's really the creative thinking at its core. Mm. Related to that is the idea of making errors. Our brain has a natural mechanism inside of it to allow us to make make errors and learn from those errors. And if we're always seeking the right answer, we don't give ourselves the space to let those errors make sense. As an example, there's a study that was done where they had two groups of students who were reading a passage or they were given a test and they had to um, then get retested afterwards. The students that just got a test without any prior knowledge got feedback on what was right and what was wrong, did better on the test in the future compared to the students that were just given a passage and had to read it, memorize it, understand it or whatever. What that suggests is that actually making errors, getting the feedback, Mm. allows us to understand and remember things and get concepts in the future better. 
And then we do have a mechanism within our brain that is facilitating that. It's called the error-related negativity. It's a, a, a spike in the brain, and it's um, generated by areas of the brain deep within, and, um, and, it, and it, you can see it spike up higher when we make a mistake. The higher it spikes, the better the more successful we are in future trials. Mm. So it is like this response that our brain has to a mistake that's not a bad thing. So I guess that, that kind of fights for um, Albert Einstein's kind of, you know, a million light bulb, whatever the quote was. Yeah. 99 ways to not yeah. make a light bulb work. And I, I love that. I think that that's, that's how we need to think of it is like, okay, I didn't find the answer, but I found 50 other answers that might work for different situations. Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome. So, um, anything else on that before we go on? Um, no, that's, I mean, that, I think that's, that's enough. <laughs> so what is it about humans neurologically that makes us, so this is more about the coach, right? Makes us want to give advice um, and provide answers rather than ask questions. So this kind of goes for all the people in the world who are like, I know everything. I am a consultant. I can fix your problems. Uh, what is it about us that really, I mean, obviously there's ego-y, psychological, whatever stuff, but what else from a neuroscience is useful? Well, first of all, I think that's an amazing question and I love it. Like that gets me so excited to talk about it because this is like something that I've grappled with so much. Um, and admittedly, it, with myself at the beginning, when I first started coaching, and even when I started mentoring students in the lab, I'd be like, here's the answer, here's the answer. And I realized pretty quickly with my students that I needed to let them figure out what the answer was and me not give it to them. If I want to keep them on long term and actually have them thinking for me in a way that was going to be useful for, for science or whatever. But it also comes up in my life coach training program. So when I'm training coaches, you know, I, I usually tell them 95% of their session is going to be discussion, reflection, questions, all of that. And then 5% is, is negotiation. So where you're negotiating, okay, what's the action we're going to take as a result of this? You know, what's the, the result of this session? How are we going to go forward from this? And it's not advice. It's negotiation. So that there's a, a relationship between the coach and the coachee where we figure out what the direction is for that person. And so I think, you know, why, why do we have this tendency to want to do that? And I think it's because culturally, in, at least in North America, generally speaking, we have a really negative relationship with negative emotions um, or anything that doesn't feel comfortable for us. So what it's really doing is reflecting our own uncomfortability with being helpless. So we want to help someone else because if someone's feeling bad, if someone's in pain, if someone's hurt, if someone's stuck... You know, any of those emotions, we don't actually like it inside of us. And so we need to resolve it in the other person. Wow. So from a neurological perspective, I'm thinking that it's probably activating the mirror neuron system. Yeah. So the mirror neuron system, system is a newer system that we're identifying in the brain where we have neurons, so brain cells, that are activated in two conditions. So you can record from a neuron and it's activated when, for example, I'm being touched on my arm. My, this one particular neuron will get activated. But when you're touched on your arm, you're, that mind same neuron gets activated. Mm. And so we're starting to put together this story that it looks like we have a system where we can empathize with other people. So my system is telling me, oh, I feel Quinn being touched, or I feel Quinn being in pain, or I feel Quinn happy, or whatever it is, and my system is feeling that. So I think that because that gets activated when we're 
working with another person, we're actually feeling what the other person is feeling. So how does the coach deal with this? Awareness, recognition that I'm feeling what that person's feeling, but that's that person's mm -hmm. feeling. And they need to go through that process. As a coach, we have to do a lot of practice with sitting in that uncomfortability, sitting in that negative space, because other people are going to have to do that. So I think, ultimately, we start working on our own relationship with that negative space, that negative emotion, whatever it is. Yeah. And actually, if you think about it in the teaching context, right, if you didn't do well on that subject in that you know, on that day in that subject with that teacher or whatever, you, and you have your memories from that, and that same type of child comes to you with the same problem, that's going to get activated. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess that's kind of different, but at the same time, it's still igniting something in you that's going to get in the way of your capacity to fully be objective and, and, and ask questions based on what you're actually seeing versus what you're feeling from the past. And, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think it's probably exactly happening in, in a teaching role, yeah. you know, and I can think of that from my own perspective. Like I see a student, um, you know, I teach psychopharmacology. So the pharmacology part is just like, you know, drug action, like how neurons are, you know, communicating their information. And it's very dry. It, you know, and I'm thinking, oh my God, the students must hate it. It's so dry <laughs> because I think that part is dry. I want to get to the like psychoactive part. Like what's our mind doing with all this? But there are students who love it. And so I'm just reflecting or, you know, sort of projecting my own experience with the pharmacology onto my students. They might be totally loving it. And I know some of them do. And they don't care about the other part of it. So, Great. So when, when a coach believes that the coachee has all the answers, right? Because that's, that's really, um, especially in, in the grading coaching model, that's something that we really um, encourage the teachers and parents and, and pupils to see in themselves or in others, um, that the, the person has all the answers. What impact does that make? And I guess from a mirror neuron, you've just said it, right? If I believe that you have the answers, what am I giving off that enables them to find the answer from a, from a neurological Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what that question made me think of was the mirror neuron system. Yeah. Um, it also makes me think of um, something that we, like the placebo effect, for example. So in science, what we do in like really well-designed studies is we, um, we include a, a blinded um, experimenter. So someone who doesn't actually know the condition of what the person is in. So if you're in any kind of drug trial or whatever, the person giving you the drugs doesn't know what condition you're in. Because there's evidence, lots and lots of evidence, that if I know the condition that you're in, I can influence how you're going to respond to the drug treatment, whether it's a real drug or it's a sugar pill that's not the real drug. So we need to blind people from this because something they're projecting is making the other person think that they're going to get better. Yeah. So we've been studying this, and there's, you know, there's some evidence that me having that expectation, expectation can cause neurological, um, neurochemical changes inside of you as the receiver of that expectation. So there is a lot of evidence, or sorry, a lot of research now being done on this placebo effect because it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. How can I deliver an expectation that changes your response to a drug? Okay, so we know that. Well, the same thing is probably happening from my my expectation that you can do well my expectation that you can find the answer that you can you know change your life right because everything that you do every one of those behaviors is having a neural effect 
So it's easy to see when it's a drug that's being given, but the same processes are happening even when it's just a thought that's being given to someone. So I expect in the next while we'll start to see more research on the mirror neuron system interacting with this sort of expectation and placebo effect. It's not nothing that I've seen right now is being done with that. It's a little too early, yeah. but I suspect that you're exactly right. It's the mirror neuron system that's probably participating in that effect. Well, and it also, what I explain it as, because I don't know the neuroscience fully, I would just say that, of course, if you believe someone has the answers, you're going to ask them different questions because you're literally thinking about something different from, oh, they surely don't know the answer, so I'm just going to give them it, mm -hmm. you know? And, and if you're hyper-focusing on, I have the answers versus they have the answers, your question is going to be different. Yeah. Or, or your statement, whatever comes out of your mouth, is going to literally be completely different because you are thinking something else before you ask or say it. Absolutely. And, and yeah, mirror nerds aside, I mean, that's just for my own functioning. I watch that. I watch that in myself, the way I talk to myself, the way I talk to other people, the way that I coach. And, and I really, I think it's something that we, we talk a lot about in coaching and beyond just having all the answers, believing that they're capable, believing that, you know, they're whole, they're not broken. Mm -hmm. um, and all of those make a really big impact on the coachee. And yeah. I, I see it firsthand. Absolutely. So Graydon developed um, the heart head step coaching model, which starts um, in on the heart. And I'm just curious about, you know, what, what is important about starting with heart stuff versus head stuff? From a neurological um, perspective and lens, what's the point of starting at heart rather than with goals or targets or outcomes and any heady type of stuff? Like, what resources do you have? Well, let me talk about what's important to me about this first. What What's important to know about that? Well, the first thing is it's hard, if not impossible, to make decisions without the heart. The heart has to be there, and, and heart can mean a lot of different things. Um, you know, your emotions, it can mean your desire, your passion, your um, even your intuition. Like, I think of intuition as very heart-based, um, but also neurologically based. But, you know, all of these, you know, gut feelings, all of this stuff, it's very um, emotion-based. And, and you really can't make decisions without emotions, and it's like a complete fallacy that we can. And lots of people recognize this, even big CEOs of companies. I've read some articles where, you know, they would be asked, like, how do you make decisions, these big major decisions to direct your company? And they're like, well, it's, in, it's intuitive. It's just a gut feeling. I just know it. I feel it. Like, they use these words like, I feel it. But what they always say is that, or the successful ones, I guess, <laughs> is that they then go back and look at the logic. Why does this make sense? So I feel it, and I'm going to find the evidence to support this feeling. Because when I go back to my you know, shareholders or whatever, they don't care about my heart. They care about the numbers and the logic. So they start with that, but then they provide the logic to make the case for the people who don't have the heart to feel it. Because it's your, it's your own heart, right? From a neurological perspective, there is evidence from Antonio Damasio, who is a neuro, um, neurologist and a, a neurologist, where he's worked with patients who have damage to their brain, so certain parts of the, um, the decision-making area of the brain, so the frontal lobes, essentially, um, and when they have damage to those to certain areas, they actually can't make a decision. So, they're, so they're, their logic side is kind of still intact. And if you ask them to make a decision, they go in these logic loops where there's nothing that sort of tips them over to, okay, well, this is actually what I want to do. Right. And then they can't make a decision. 
So it's a really good example of how the heart needs to be part of that or emotions need to be part of that. Great. So yeah, so it's, a, it's emotion first in this decision-making loop, followed by reason and logic. Mm -hmm. And even if I think about this, you know, even more basic from like the, the research in the lab, when we're looking at animals and their goal-directed behavior, or, you know, really focusing on what they're trying to achieve, it's the, the system that is regulating this is very closely related structurally to the reward system. So certain areas that are activated with like, I'm going to use cocaine as an example, but drugs that are highly rewarding are participating in the goal that they're seeking. So you can't seek a goal. Like I can't get an animal to walk through a maze if there's no desire to get the food or if there's no desire to get um, out of the water or anything. Like desire is the motivating thing to get the animal to move anywhere. So it has to be part of it. Fabulous. So what does the coach need to do um, neurologically to most effectively manage and, and reduce the impact of them on the coaching, right? So this almost takes us back to that question before, um, which, which I think is a really important question, but what can the coach actually do uh, to, to fully be with that person and not in their own head? And, you know, for example, talking about the heart, if I don't think your dream is great. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, your desire is to go to the end of the maze and get the food. Then then how am I going to coach you if I'm sitting there thinking that? So what, you know, how does the, the coach manage that and really focus on what's important to that person rather than what's important to them? Mm -hmm. I think that that requires a lot of self-awareness. Um, and I'm going to come back to mindfulness um, as a sort of overarching term to capture a lot of the pieces or the elements of what's necessary there. And so mindfulness is really just paying attention to the present moment without judgment. It's just being here with whatever is going on. And I can say that, but I can also practice that. And practicing it means that I bring up compassion for myself and for the other person. It means I practice being okay when it's uncomfortable, when I feel sad for a person. I practice being silent. I practice recognizing my urge to quickly say something or to give space and give silence. So I think it's a really deep practice that can sort of give all the space that a, a coachee needs in order to achieve the, you know, their own self-reflection, to make their own mistakes, to, you know, learn for themselves, to go through their own process. It's not something that happens immediately. It's something that really is a practice. And I think we need to think about that as not just, okay, I need to get this skill, so I'm going to take this workshop. It's I'm going to always be practicing this mm. and do my own self-reflection. In teaching, um, I know that you know reflective journaling is a really important part of developing your, your teaching portfolio and your own teaching practice. Same thing can happen in um, coaching. So I have a, a, you know, I journal a lot after a session. You know, where did I, where did I jump in too soon? Where did I feel my own energy being part of it as opposed to sitting back and just letting the space be there for my coachee? So I think mindfulness can sort of capture all of that and I think it's a really good practice. And I also know from experience that it's changing my brain. I have a new relationship with silence. I have a new relationship with um, uncomfortability, with negativity, with everything. And it's a practice that I'm continuing to develop all the time. And, and with that, mindfulness for the coachee too. 
it, you know, it's, it really struck a chord with me when you were talking about that, about compassion. And, and when the coach is like, oh, well, what do you think I should do? Right. That moment where the coachy really, really wants to know how can, you know, those two people actually form a relationship that's more about how can we accept this moment and how can we be really consciously focused and, and paying attention rather than worrying about the conversation or what's going to happen afterwards. Um, and I think that's that's fully mindfulness for both the coach and coachy, mm-hmm. which is which is why it's something that we're integrating more and more into our training and, and bringing that into this space of, well, when you're coaching, you're also being mindful and mindfulness and coaching are not as drastically different mm-hmm. as um, when you think of meditation versus mindfulness and meditation and coaching don't seem like the same thing. Yeah. Well, you may not be sitting on a mountain with your legs crossed, <laughs> but you're paying really close attention and you're really focusing. And, and as a result of doing that, you're accepting the moment and then moving forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, okay, so here, pause. We haven't really paused much, I noticed. I know. I know. It's like, this is going to be really hard to edit. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, so um, I've just got two more questions, and we've got, it's 48 minutes. So. Okay. Yeah. So using the metaphor of having different maps of the world or different world views, what does neuroscience say about coaching um, a coachee who sees the world completely differently than the coach? So if I really see the world as, you know, full of abundance and, and, and there's just so many opportunities and the person I'm coaching is coming from a p- complete place of lack and they just don't see options, they don't see opportunities, they just see roadblocks. How do I um, manage that? But also how do I help them almost see another way of seeing the world without clouding my worldview into that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one thing to sort of remember about the brain like clearly you know two people's brains are going to be different so you know you as the coach coming from one perspective is going to have a different brain than the the person the coachee okay because of different experiences so your brains have developed differently but they have the same elements so we have the same building blocks so essentially we have the same capacity to think in certain ways and so then it can be okay how can I sort of break down um, and find common elements and analogies and metaphors I think are really really useful for finding that common ground analogies and metaphors are super useful for the brain I mean it's a way of we remember concepts better we can think things differently we can abstract after that like we can do so much with analogies and metaphors and it also breaks down some of those barriers in some ways when a person is coming from one map and trying to communicate with someone with a different map, it's no different than having you know, English versus you know, Japanese. It's different languages. So we can find a commonality by pictures, right? So when you go, you know, we have pictures on our, our street signs here so that people know what that means, right? So they, you know, they know that you can't cross here or children are crossing here because pictures make sense to us. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's just an analogy, it's just a metaphor. So I think the goal, and this is where it's really the coach's responsibility to say, okay, where, where's an analogy? How can I find a metaphor? How can I relate my experiences to this person? Or, or how can I relate their experiences to mine? Mm. So what analogy can I use? Where have I experienced you know, a lack of abundance in my life? So maybe I haven't experienced it in you know, this, this, or this, but I have in this particular element. So how can that become the new analogy or the new metaphor that we work from? And, and I guess it's bringing back in being compassionate and uh, whilst you don't see this, the world the same way that they do, 
you see the world maybe the same way in different areas ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. Somewhere on that scale, you see it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Great. And so what is the evidence, or what evidence, I guess, would, would support that coaching is, is a journey, um, and it's a process, and it's not just about this beautifully wrapped present that we hand the coachee and say, hey, you know, here's the gift. I'll see you later. Um, what's the evidence about it actually being about planting really tiny seeds and then watering those seeds and kind of coming back and being like, okay, well, how are the seeds growing? Are they growing? You know, and, and what do you want to do next? Mm -hmm. I think that the neuroplasticity, like coming back to neuroplasticity. So our brain is very plastic. It's changing all the time. And that's sort of reflective of a process. So our brain isn't going to stop developing. So we aren't going to stop developing. So why would we ever end up with this final present that's all wrapped and neat and tidy? Because it's a process. Our whole life is going to be developing ourselves. I mean, we could each of us as individuals could spend our whole life trying to you know, become the best person that we can be. When Maslow talks about self-actualization, you know, it's rarely that we get there. It's like, how are we getting there? What's the process to actually get there? Because that's a fun and rewarding journey. And you can look back and see how you've changed now compared to, you know, a year ago. I do that with my clients all the time. It's like, okay, let, when they feel like they haven't done any progress. Okay, let's look back to where you were a year ago and what your thinking was there. Well, mm -hmm. you've changed. Your brain has changed as a result of that, and you're going to continue to change. I think we also need constant reminders because just as quickly as our ch brain can change in a positive way, it can change back in a negative way. If all of a sudden we're around people who are all negative, who see lots of obstacles and you know are giving us all the advice or whatever, then we're going to fall back into that perspective. So we need to continue to surround ourselves with ways that are going to keep our brain changing in the way that we want to go. Fabulous. So I guess my last question, I mean, of course, the other last question will be what else and is there anything else? <laughs> but my last question before that is just, you know, I, I'm a teacher, I'm a parent, and I want the best for my colleague or my friend or my child or I'm a child and I want to have a really good conversation with my mom. You know, what is it that... What do I need to know about neuroscience and coaching and, and these, you know, what, what I see us talking about is really effective communication mm -hmm. and really awesome conversations, you know, where each person feels satisfied and gets the result that they want and both brains change and two people go on their merry ways and may come back together again every week, every month, or maybe a year from now. Um, so what is it that what does everyone need to know that they may not know? And, and, and personally, I'm, I'm curious. So I think for this, it comes back to tolerance. Like one of the things that I've gained, a, I think, a lot of is tolerance because I understand neuroscience. So I understand how people's brains develop. I understand that the experiences that they have shape how their brains end up being. And that means that it shapes how they think about things. It shapes how their behaviors. I'm going to give a sort of a, a negative example because I think it's really profound. And so, you know, when someone is abused as a child, they're likely to, unless they've had some kind of intervention, they're very likely to go on to become an abuser. When we see that person as an adult, 
we give them very little compassion and we think you're so bad how could you abuse another child how could you do anything and and we think very badly of them but as soon as you think back or as soon as you gain the knowledge that that person probably was abused as a child we see them as a child and we have all this compassion for them well why not as an adult because they aren't in some ways yes they're responsible and they you know they can learn but maybe their life hasn't gone in a way where they've actually learned how bad it is they might associate abuse with love mm-hmm. and that they only know love by being abused so that's how they deliver it to another person i'm not saying that their behavior is appropriate but i don't think that they're a bad person and i think that their brain has developed in a certain way that's led them to think that those behaviors are okay I also believe that they can change and that their brains can change and that they can develop more appropriate behaviors and good behaviors. But for me, it's understanding how any brain got to this particular point. So, if I'm in a conversation with you and we have conflict or disagreement or are on very different pages, am I going to say you're a bad person or I don't like the way you are or you're terrible, I can't believe that you have these thoughts or I'm going to say, "Okay, what led her to think that particular way?" and more important what led me to think this particular way and then we can start to question ourselves why do i have these beliefs you know what kind of thing did i learn as a child or as a young adult that led me to have this particular belief so tolerance <laughs> yeah that's amazing and and so i'm going to ask the question that i said i was going to ask which is what else if there is anything else and and if not then I think there's so much else. Like there's like <laughs> there's the, a lot else. There is and for me I want people to feel like they know I do believe everyone is a neuroscientist because we all have a brain. And so you are a neuroscientist, anyone listening is a neuroscientist. And to take it upon themselves to say, "Okay, what is actually going on in my brain?" and be curious about what's going on. You can do some self-reflection and just be like, "Oh, well this is my pattern of behavior and that reflects something that's going on in my brain even if you don't know the elements you don't know the pieces or whatever maybe you want to go even further and say okay how does my brain actually work from a from an outside perspective what have other people looked at and how does that work so i think that we can continue to understand neuroscience i don't think anyone should be afraid of it i think people should be open to you know what is it it's just it's another language it's another perspective on how to understand and relate to other people fabulous wow Okay, well, uh thank you for being here. <laughs> this was awesome. Um and thank you for uh for really for actually sharing a lot about you and mm. yeah, and and being really honest and and coming from, you know, Manny and I have talked a lot about or we have talked a lot about um how whilst, you know, neuroscience is early and there's not this huge amount of research or whatever it is, there's a good enough amount and uh Manny has studied for a long time and and knows a lot more than I do. Um but as you said I'm a neuroscientist too because I have a brain. Exactly. <laughs> so thank you so much and uh we'll probably be doing more of these. So we'll you'll hear from us soon. Well thank you Quinn too. And thanks for everyone listening. <laughs> Yay! Okay, bye.